Well, if you have a Bible with you, please open it and turn to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one of the ones in these black chairback pockets. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of the Bibles in these black chairback pockets. Those are there for you. And if you're using one of these Bibles, one of these paperback Bibles in the, pa- in the pockets, it's, uh, we're turning to page 722. Um, again, it's Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And please follow along with me as I read. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will you pray with me? Our Father, this is... This is such a beautiful text, such an important passage. I so deeply desire that we would not miss what you're saying. So please, please come. Holy Spirit, come into this place. Come to these people. Give us ears to hear what you are saying through your word. Please enable me to speak what you want me to say. Please let Jesus be lifted up and let our hearts be drawn to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, one of, the, one of the key words, one of the most important words in this passage is the word great. And it comes up in verse 42, where Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority. And it comes up again in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. What do we mean when we call someone great? We mean that they're exceptional, that they're notable, that, they're, that they stand out from the rest. And on some level, we all want to be great, at least at something. No one sets out, no one's ambition is to be mediocre at everything they do, kind of average across the board. 
There's something that we want to be great at, one cherished area of life where we want to stand out. We want to be noticed. We want to be the best. And it's probably something you at least have a little bit of a natural aptitude for. So when I was growing up, it was readily apparent to myself and to my parents, everyone in my neighborhood who had the use of their eyes, that if I was ever going to be great at something, it was not going to be anything that involved hand-eye coordination or foot-eye coordination, for that matter. I played several seasons of uh, kind of peewee football, soccer, indoor and outdoor. I scored one goal. It was against my own team. The last season I played of baseball, I only connected bat with ball one time, and it was right to the first baseman, out, just like that. And I was so happy that I, that I actually hit the ball. Um, in, in order for me to explain to you, to tell you what my nickname growing up on the basketball court was, I need to give you two pieces of information about America in the early 90s. One is there was a rapper named Sir Mix-a-Lot, and I discourage you from looking him up. I just want you to know that his name was Sir Mix-a-Lot. The second piece of information is that in basketball, a shot that you make that doesn't go in through the rim but bounces off the rim loudly is called a brick, okay? So this kid in my neighborhood played about ball with me one time, and he called me Sir Bricks-a-Lot, and that name stuck for as long as I played basketball, which obviously wasn't very long. So my parents knew that if I was ever going to be great at something, it was going to be something that involved books and being inside. And that, I mean, so far, so good, right? Um, So I wonder what your ambition is. How do you want to be great? Maybe it's to edge out the competition for the next managerial opening at work. Maybe it's to get a small business off the ground. Maybe it's to have successful kids. Maybe you'd love just one time for someone to call you beautiful. Maybe nothing would please you more than this afternoon getting 100 likes on your next status update on Facebook. There's some area where we all want to stand out, where we want to be great, we want to be noticed. And we're going to see that the same was true of Jesus' disciples in this passage. So what's going on in this passage? Well, Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus out front of everybody. Even though the religious authorities in Jerusalem, they've, they've made it public that Jesus is their enemy, Jesus knows they're seeking his life, Jesus has set his face to go right into the lion's den. He is headed for Jerusalem. And verse 32 tells us that his disciples were amazed and those who followed were afraid. There's a seriousness about this man out in front by himself, headed up to the place where his enemies are, that is profoundly unsettling to his friends and followers. And their apprehensions about what's going to happen in Jerusalem are fully justified. Jesus tells them what's going to happen when they get there. Verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's the way Jesus refers to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would be the Roman occupying government. And they, the Romans, will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is the third time Jesus has predicted his death to his disciples And for the third time, they totally miss his meaning. And you can see that by what happens immediately. So Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem. I am going to die. And in verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, these are two of his apostles, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They they come to him asking for a blank check. Jesus, do us a favor. Now, wouldn't you think that a friend 
when you had just told them you were within days of the end of your life, would say, teacher, is there anything we can do? Teacher, is there any way we can serve you? No. Teacher, we want you to do something for us. Teacher, do us a favor. And Jesus, amazingly, in his love, indulges them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And here's, here's what they think is going to happen. These guys, even though Jesus has just said, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, here's what they think is going to happen. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to reign on a throne as the king of Israel. And they're thinking, we're getting pretty close to the end. We better make sure we get our dibs in. I want to sit on a throne with Jesus. So they're picturing Jesus on a throne, and then a throne to the right and a throne to the left. Prime Minister, Secretary of State. That's where they want to be. They want, they want Jesus to make them great. They want Jesus to make them greater than even the other ten apostles, greater than anyone but him. And as you can imagine, the other ten apostles, when they hear about this, they get pretty upset. It really irritates them. It says in verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Well, yeah, they're trying to cut them out. So Jesus, still incredibly patient, he's on his way to die, and he still stops, and he calls the twelve around, and he gives them a lesson about true greatness that we're going to look at this morning. He wants us to know that when you boil it down, there are really only two ways to pursue greatness, two ways to be great. You can be great at a lot of different things, but really, in your heart, when you're pursuing it, there are really only two ways to go. So we're going to see two ways, two kinds of greatness this morning, and two ways Jesus enables us to be truly great. So first, the first kind of greatness there is, is worldly greatness, which I would call, and you've got blanks on your bulletin, I put that there for the kids if they want to fill it in as they listen, self-service at the expense of others. Jesus warns his disciples that there's a kind of greatness widely accepted and practiced in the world that's all about serving yourself. And this is verse 42. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He says, Think about those Romans, the Roman emperors and governors, the Roman military leaders that you complain so much about that you want me to get rid of. What do they call great? How do they think about greatness? They think greatness means being able to make other people do whatever you want them to do, to get them to serve you. And they, they do as they please, right? The Romans did as they pleased with the Jews. They taxed them. They could imprison them. They could take their life if they wanted to. They serve themselves at the expense of others. And then he says in verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. So why does Jesus need to warn his disciples not to be like their enemies, the people that they would never want to be in the same room with? Because the kind of greatness that they find so despicable in the Romans, who use other people for their own ends, is exactly what's going on in James and John's heart in this passage. James and John are looking to serve themselves at the expense of others, right? You might know that James and John are part of Jesus' inner, inner circle, his three closest disciples, James, John, and Peter. And here, they are totally willing to throw Peter under the bus, right? They They don't care about Peter. They did not ask for three thrones, They wanted to come, the brothers, just them two, and get kind of on the inside track for Jesus, uh, for his his favor, for Jesus to elevate them. They want to throw Peter behind. And it's the same with the other ten, right? They must have known, when this gets out, those guys 
are going to really be irked at us. But they still, they still did it. They didn't care. They wanted to get what they wanted, no matter what it cost anyone else. So notice, too, they even want Jesus to serve them. In, in their minds, they so deserve to be great that they come to Jesus. He just predicted his death and say, Jesus, we want you to serve us. Give us anything we want. They're so confident that they deserve it. And they're even confident they can do whatever it takes to get it. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And that can be sort of cryptic. So let me explain what's going on there. When Jesus talks about the cup and the baptism, he's talking about two ways the Old Testament talks about God's judgment, God's anger against sin. So look, for example, at, at Psalm 75, verse 8, verse 8, which should be on the screen behind me. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So this cup is judgment on the wicked. What about baptism? Well, baptism is just an immersion, right? It's an immersion in water, and there are several places in the Old Testament, places you're probably familiar with, where Jesus where God judges through water, right? At the time of Noah, the world was full of violence and godlessness, and so God flooded it. He, he covered it in water. At the time of the Exodus, God brought his people out on dry land through the sea, and then Pharaoh's army was coming behind them, and God closed the sea over them. Or you think about Jonah. Jonah, whom God said, I want you to go preach to Nineveh, and Jonah said, I'm going the exact opposite direction. What happened to Jonah thrown into the sea, right? God, God judges through water. And so Jesus is saying, there's another place in Psalm 69 where David, afraid for his own life, says, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. He wanted God to save him from death. So when Jesus is saying, I have a cup and I have a baptism, he's saying, between this day And the day when I reign on that throne, the day that I reign in glory, I have suffering. I have suffering to undergo. I'm going to suffer out of love for you. Can you suffer like me? Can you take the cup? Can you take the baptism? And they, no hesitation, definitely. We can do whatever it takes to be great. We really deserve this. So, what's beneath this ambition? What's beneath this resolve on their part to do whatever it takes to sit on thrones with Jesus? Is it love for him? They just want to be close to him. They just want to be where he is. No, it's pride. It's pride. Pride says, me first. I am most important. I should be up front. I'm going to do what's good for me. And that's the way the world wants us to pursue greatness. Like the Roman rulers, for me. And Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to beware A pursuit of greatness that serves itself at others' expense is never going to lead to joy. So we need to ask ourselves, as as we look at this passage, it's easy to be so judgmental of James and John and think, how could you be so callous? But we need to see ourselves here. Do you see yourself in this passage? The other ten disciples didn't. They were just as mad. They were mad at James and John because they wished they'd gotten there first, not because they were more sympathetic to Jesus. The problem with pride is that it's so hard to see in ourselves. We don't think it's pride to demand that we get credit at work for everything we do. We just think that's fairness. 
We don't think it's pride to get angry at our children because they disobey us in the grocery store and won't pull, stop pulling stuff off the shelves. We just think they should honor their father and mother. We don't think it's pride to get so upset in traffic when we're not going as fast as we want to because we've got somewhere important to be. But what we don't see is that behind those things is an assumption that we deserve the world to accommodate us. We deserve everything to work out right for us. Everyone should serve us. Everything should fall in line with what we want. My son Joshua recently, he's 20 months old, he was sick, and after he was sick, he kept waking up crying at night. He just got used to it, so he kept doing it even when he was well. And one night, we, my wife and I got in, we put him back to bed, we got back in bed, and I was lying there, and my heart was racing, and my muscles were tense, and my teeth were gritted, and I couldn't fall asleep, and I realized, this is anger. I am, I am furious at my 20-month-old son for waking up sad. Why? Because I think I deserve my life to be easy. I deserve a full night's sleep. How dare he wake up crying? You know, the little rascal when he knows that dad deserves better. It's, it's pride. It's pride, but it took me so long to see in myself. This is a problem for all of us, and it has been from the beginning, right? Pride was the sin of the devil, who said, I'm going to be equal with God and got cast out of heaven. It's, it's how he tempted Adam and Eve saying, you know, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you won't have to let God tell you what's right and wrong. You'll know for yourself. You can, you can get rid of God and live your own life. It's not just, pride isn't just a sin. Pride is behind every sin. It's the root, it's the essence of all of it. We don't want to honor God. We don't think God's words are good. We want to go our own way and do what we want to do. And we'll do it even at others' expense. So Jesus wants us to watch out if our pursuit of greatness is rooted in pride. And the key question to ask of our ambitions is, why? Why do you want a promotion? Why do you want a new car or a new house or a new phone? Why, why is it so important to you that your kids do well in school? Why do you spend so much time in front of the mirror? Why are so many of your tweets and pictures on Facebook about yourself? What are you after, really? If what you really want is for the world to take notice of you, for people to pay attention to you, for others to see how great you are, watch out. Watch out. That's not the way God sees greatness. Jesus says in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. So how should it be? How should it be among the followers of Jesus? The second way, the second kind of greatness is true greatness, self-sacrifice for the good of others. Jesus continues in verse 43, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus completely turns the world's values on their head. The world says, do whatever it takes to be first. Climb the ladder. Get high. Jesus says that true greatness is not getting high, but getting low, not climbing up, but kneeling down. True greatness doesn't use other people. True greatness serves other people. True greatness doesn't ask, how can I use what I have for me? True greatness asks, how can I use what I have for you? Jesus says that among his followers, the great ones are the servants, and the highest of all is the slave of all. So if you were, if you were to have been living at this time, you were kind of to peer through the window of a Roman ruler's house, you would see 
a man dressed in expensive clothing, reclining at a table, heaped high with food. And you'd see someone else, and that, that would be the servant, the table servant, scurrying back and forth, making sure that his, his wine is fresh and he has everything that he wants, making sure that he's happy. And you would see someone else, which would be the slave, probably on the floor, washing his feet, doing something even the servant wouldn't do. The slave was the absolute bottom. And Jesus says, the greatest of all among my followers is the one who is the slave, who gets below everyone. If you were to ask someone at the time, who's the greatest person in this room? They would say, well, the greatest person is the one who has the money and the power and the influence to make everybody else do what he wants. And Jesus says, the greatest person in the room is the slave because he serves. What, what is a slave? A slave is someone who is not free not to serve. They get no choice. They don't get to decide, uh, I don't know, I really would rather stay in bed. I don't think I'm going to serve the governor this morning. The slave gets up because the slave has no choice, right? If you want to be great in the way that Jesus counts greatness, you be the slave of all. He says you, you need to see everyone in your life, everyone in your life as a person. You have no choice about whether to serve, about whether to love. Live for the good of everyone else. The world says, serve yourself, whatever the cost to those around you. And Jesus says, serve those around you, whatever the cost to yourself. And this is no one's instinctive ambition, right? Kim and I, we haven't stayed up to date entirely with Downton Abbey, but we watched the first three seasons. And man, Lord Grantham, for those of you who've watched the show, he really had the life, didn't he? I mean, this guy if you wanted to find him any time of the day, there are only two places you need to look. He is either on a walk with dog or he is reading in the library. Sign me up for the Lord Grantham life, right? Nobody watches Downton Abbey and thinks, you know who I really want to be? The footman. I want to carry bags all day. I want to I carry the gravy boat around at dinner. I want to work 16 hours. That is the life I choose. No, everybody wants to be the rich people. Everyone wants to be great. But that's not how Jesus wants us to, to aspire. So what's, what's the driving factor behind this life? If the driving factor behind wanting to get ahead at anyone's expense is pride, what would cause someone to serve everyone else? Humility. Pride says, me first. Humility says, you first. Pride says, I am most important. Humility says, you are most important. Humility is interesting because on the one hand, it's something we love in other people, right? Don't you? We love humble people. They like to talk about us, right? They ask us questions. They, they don't complain to us. They're thankful because they're so amazed at all the good things they don't deserve. Working with humble people, interacting with them, it's frictionless. It's so easy. You walk away from them thinking, I just love that guy. That was so easy. No conflict. We love it in other people, but very few of us want to be humble ourselves because we don't, if we're having a conversation and, and we're only talking about the other per- person, we're afraid that all the profound things we want to say, no one's ever going to get to hear if we don't come out with them, right? We want everyone else to know if we were right and they were wrong. It's just a matter of justice that everyone know that I was right and you were wrong. We don't, we don't believe Jesus that humility is the true path to joy. But how would our lives look if we did? What if we took Jesus seriously and, and decided that the truly great life was the life lived not for ourselves but for others? We would work hard to serve our employer but for the good of the company, not for our own career. We would come home from work ready to play with the kids, give our spouse a break, not looking for me time. We would honor our parents 
children, we would honor our parents and trust that they know what they're talking about. That would be humility. In conflict, we'd aim for reconciliation, not to prove our point. So who can show us the way to get there? Who, who can, if the Romans are the example of worldly greatness, who is the example of true greatness? Well, obviously, the best example of true greatness is Jesus. So Jesus' death is our example of humility. Jesus has been arguing that the way to be truly great is to serve, is to be the slave, and he tells us why in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is the second time that Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. And we need to know what he means by that because it's so it's key to you seeing the depth of his love for you. The Son of Man. So in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Daniel. And Daniel is most famous for not being eaten by lions. But Daniel also has a whole book, and he has prophecies, and he had this vision in chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is a king. He's a human king. He's a son of man. But he also seems like more than a king, right? He comes on the clouds of heaven. How many, how many human beings have you seen come on the clouds of heaven? His kingdom, it says, is an everlasting kingdom. How many kings reign forever? And he's not just the king of one kind of part of the earth. It says he's the king of the whole earth, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So he's a human king who comes to God for a kingdom, but he's more than a human. He's divine. And Jesus is saying, I am this king. I am the son of man. I am the king who will reign forever. And all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve me. But why did the son of man come, he says, not to be served. I'm going to serve everyone else. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, if I, I'm God in the flesh, if I can humble myself to be the slave of all people, you can humble yourself to serve one another. Jesus went from the highest place, the right hand of God in heaven, to the absolute lowest place imaginable, death on a Roman cross. No one could ever go from as high to as low as Jesus did. We can't do what he did, but we can, in small ways in our daily lives, imitate Jesus' humility. So what does this death show? What does he show us about loving one another? His death shows us we can't put limits on the extent to which we're willing to serve one another and love one another. It wasn't just that Jesus loved us, even though we didn't deserve it. Jesus loved us to death. He loved us to the uttermost. And we, we like to set limits on love, don't we? Well, I will love you this much, and then we're done. I will load the washing machine for you, but do not ask me to fold it once it's dry. Right? I, I will pick, up you, I'll pick you up, I'll give you a ride to work today, but do not expect me to take you all week. I will run errands with you for two hours, but at two hours, wherever we are, I am done. Not an errand guy. So we, I find this in parenting 
constantly. Like one, one of my responsibilities is to get Joshua up in the morning, give him breakfast. It gives Kim a chance to sleep in a little bit, get a shower, feel like a human being before she has to parent a toddler all day. And, and I, our agreement is that at 7.30, I am done. At 7.30, I go to work, she takes over, and at 7.31, I'm okay. 7.31, I can give grace for that. It's just a minute. But 7.35, I start keeping track of the minutes she owes me. We have reached the limits of my love and my desire to serve my wife in the morning. We set limits on our love because we're afraid of what it might cost us to really put someone else first. We're afraid of giving more than we get. We always want it to be equal, right? But not Jesus. Jesus gives his service so freely. He's so free in his love. And this is how real love always acts, right? Real love always sacrifices itself for the beloved. When you forgive someone, when you really forgive them, you have to sacrifice the ability to ever bring that thing up again. When you marry someone, you sacrifice the ability to ever walk away from the relationship. When you really love your children, you sacrifice the ability to indulge yourself on evenings and weekends, right? You're not free anymore in the same way that you were. That's how love always is. It gives something up for the other. Jesus gives us the greatest example imaginable of true greatness, of self-sacrifice for the good of others. And an example is good, but we need more than an example, don't we? I mean, an example is good, but here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen if we read this and we think, okay, true greatness, i got to serve, i got to love everyone, I'm just going to go do it. I'm going to grip my teeth and I'm going to be loving. It's not going to work. It's going to fail because you might succeed for a little while, but we're like rubber bands. We eventually always snap back to the way we were. We need something more than an example. We need power to change. Fortunately, we don't need to look far. Jesus' death is our example, but also, fourth and finally, Jesus' death is our power. Jesus' death doesn't just show us how to pursue greatness through humble love. It actually has the power to make us more humble and to make us more loving. Where do I see that? I said earlier that in this passage, one of the most important words is great, but it's not the most important word. The most important word in this passage is ransom. Look at verse 45 again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is an incredible word. Ransom is a make-you-weep kind of word. I hope you... I hope you're listening. I know it's early and it can be warm in here. If I lost you in point two, I want you back right here. I want you to hear this because ransom can change your life. What's a ransom? It's, we basically only use this word today in reference to kidnappings. Um, but that's, that's actually kind of a good illustration of what it means. A ransom is a payment that brings freedom. It's a payment that sets you free. And so in Jesus' day, it wasn't just used of kidnappings. It was used more broadly. So Let's say that you got into debt with someone, a debt you couldn't pay off. A relative could pay off your debt. They could pay a ransom and set you free from debt. Or if, if you'd gone so deeply in debt that you actually became a slave, an indentured servant to the per- person to whom you owed the money, someone could pay a ransom and set you free from slavery. And a ransom could even set you free from guilt. So in the religion of the Old Testament, Um, the religion, you know, before Jesus came, when you sinned against God, you owed him a debt. God is infinitely holy. He's infinitely just. He's infinitely worthy. 
And if you break his law, you owe him a debt. And the debt you owe him because he's so great is death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. But God made this provision. He said, if you will bring an animal, I will accept the animal's life. You sacrifice the animal, I accept the animal's life for your life. I will, I will make that death your death, and you go free. The animal was your ransom from guilt, your ransom from death. And Jesus is saying, I can't give my life as that kind of ransom, a ransom for many. So you have to think of it this way. You picture yourself, picture all of us, in a prison. It is death row, right? We are in cells lining a hallway, and we deserve to be there. We're all guilty. We deserve what's coming. And Jesus comes into the, into the death row. He comes into the prison, and he says, how much to set this one free? And the jailer says, life for life, your life for his. And Jesus says, I'm going to take all of them. I'm going to take everybody. I am the sinless son of God. I am infinitely worthy. My life is worth all of theirs. I've come to be a ransom, not for one, a ransom for many. Take my life, let them go. That's what Jesus came to do on the cross. There is no love like the love of Jesus. He gave his life to set sinners free from death, free from hell forever. If you trust Jesus You will not in a million years be condemned for your sins. You will never suffer for them because Jesus suffered on your behalf. And it gets even better. It gets even better because you see, a ransom doesn't just set us free from death. Because the problem, part of the problem is it wasn't just that before we trusted in Jesus that we were condemned, we were actually slaves to sin. We couldn't stop. Anyone who doesn't have Jesus can't stop sinning. We do what we don't want to do. We don't want to, we don't want to hurt our family, but we do. We don't, want to, we don't want to pursue money at the expense of people, but we do. We can't stop sinning. And yet Jesus' ransom, not only does it set us free from death, it sets us free from sin. It sets us free. We're no longer slaves. It sets us free, not, not free to do whatever we want, but free to do what we were made to do, free to obey God, free to love one another. The ransom that Jesus came to be actually has the power to change us into people who are truly great, who serve one another at our own expense, who self-sacrifice for the good of others. If you get this, if you get that you are so sinful that the only ransom that could set you free was the life of God himself, that's going to humble you. It's going to be hard to be proud when you realize you're so bad that Jesus had to die. And if you get that he loved you so much that he was willing to give his life, then you're not going to need the approval of the world. You're not going to need to seek to be great in the world's eyes because you have all the love and acceptance you need in Jesus. You can love people without needing anything back from them. So here's an ambition that's actually worth your life. Be great like Jesus by laying down your life for others like Jesus. Every other ambition is so small and no other ambition will satisfy. If the ambition of your life is to serve yourself, your experience is going to be one of constant frustration. If every morning you wake up thinking, I want to make an easy life for me, you are going to, you are going to hit snag after snag because the world wasn't built to serve you. It's going to... <laughs> Every time someone comes to you and asks you for something, it's going to be this incredible inconvenience because 
It's getting in the way of you serving yourself, of you fulfilling your mission in life to make your own life easy. Your kids are going to be inconvenienced. Your, your wife is going to be inconvenienced. Your work is going to be inconvenienced. But if the ambition of your life is to humbly serve everyone you meet, then the world is your oyster. Because the world is full of needs. The world is full of opportunities to serve. So if your deep desire is to be like Jesus through humbly serving when your child wakes up in the middle of the night or your spouse is sick or your neighbor's car won't start or someone at work needs 10 minutes of your time to talk about a personal matter, it's not going to throw you. It's gonna be, that's going to be your bread and butter. That's why you're here. You're here to love. You're here to serve. Jesus said that his food was to do the will of him who, of him who sent him. His food was to do the will of God. It satisfied him like bread for his soul. And so if your food is to humbly serve people at cost to yourself, you will never go hungry again. I'm sure that some of you are thinking, that's fine, but that, <laughs> I can't actually do that. I can't serve other people every moment of my life. I need to sleep. I need to go to work. I need to spend time with my family, and that's right. That's right. Jesus didn't do all the good that he could. He did all the good he was called to. Jesus left towns without healing everybody in them. Jesus went on retreats with his disciples. Jesus slept. He's not calling us to kind of frantically drive ourselves into the ground trying to, trying to serve everyone in the whole world. He's calling us to a change of attitude, though, that's profound, of living for ourselves to living for others. So think how differently this community would be, this church would be, if we really took Jesus' words seriously. Think of how marriages would be changed if people woke up each day looking to serve and to bless and to surprise rather than to get Think of how children would flourish if we didn't see them as kind of inconveniences for our happiness, but instead considered them more significant than ourselves. Think of how much happier we'd be if we no longer cared about what anyone thought of us, whether anyone knew how much we do for the church or how much we give. Think of how welcoming we would be if we saw everyone who came through the doors as more important than we are. Our humility would point to God's greatness, and our love would point to his love. The way to be truly great is the servant of all. Jesus, through his death, has given us the ultimate example and all the power we need to actually live this way. And when we do this, when this is our ambition, God will be glorified and we will be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you above all for being a ransom. You came to give your life so that we could go free, free from debt, free from owing God anything, free from, free from death, free from hell, free from slavery to sin, not so that we could do whatever we want and be self-indulgent, but so that we could, we could gladly belong to your Father forever. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for loving us at cost to yourself. Please help us to love one another at cost to ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.